The Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians late in his life is amazing because it is filled with joy and thanksgiving. In chapter 3, Paul tells us the one thing he still had that gave him a reason to bubble over with joy. Before we get to the climax of his letter, let's discover with our study leader Dave Wurtson what led to Paul's intensity and his personal sharing. How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? We had an incredible time on our Thanksgiving. We had the Lowry family with us, and I'm really thankful for family. We go around the table, and our family, we have a custom where you take a nut. My mother started it years ago on our own, uh, the Wurtson family, and you take that nut and you express something you're thankful for and how moving it was for Mary to share how thankful she was for Mary and Dave that when her mom and dad were across the big pond in London and Cambridge, that they had a family to go to. And I couldn't help but think that uh, as we had the Lowry's, which has been our custom for years and years and years, that uh, in Christ we always have moms and dads. We always have kids. Even when our physical blood mom and dads are away, we have a family to go to. And that's one thing I'm really, really thankful for. I'm really thankful also for the incredible food that we had. How many of you had just a delicious meal, incredible turkey, and maybe some of you are into the ham thing or the pheasant thing? And uh, we had just an incredible meal, and Mary and I were really rejoicing because on Monday night we got a call about 10 o'clock, and my daughter Janae, that's usually just effervescent and excited and everything else, it was like she was a deer, caught in the headlights, and she just very calmly said after she said, how are things going? And she said, I want you to know that uh, I just got engaged. And so Janae and Harvey are going to get married. Harvey was here last week. And uh, we knew that the news was coming. wasn't sure exactly when it was happening. But I had bets that it would happen on Monday because we knew that Harvey got the ring on Monday. And I told Harvey, if any like my boys, the ring will not burn much of a hole in your pocket. So we had a lot to be thankful for, and uh, we really rejoiced in that. You know what amazes me, though, about the book of Philippians? If you turn to the book of Philippians, what amazes me about the Apostle Paul is that all of us can be thankful when your, your daughter get engaged as a dad, you can be thankful when you get the last daughter out of the nest. And after you go totally broke paying for a wedding, at least you'll have someone else trying to take care of that for the rest of her life. A uh, lot to be thankful for. The Apostle Paul's an amazing man. In Philippi, on his second missionary journey, when he went there, the Apostle Paul, one minute was in this beautiful, luxurious home of Lydia. The stellar of purple. It would be like being up in the Highland Park area of Dallas with a very renowned business lady, you know, maybe like Mary Kay or someone like that, was incredibly successful. And Paul and Silas are rejoicing in this incredible palace in the city of Philippi. Then they get arrested the next day and they get thrown in jail, and so that they're suffering. And the amazing thing in the middle of the night, the Apostle Paul and Silas are not moaning and they're not groaning, but they are praising the Lord. They are having a praise and worship service in the middle of the night. In fact, their praise and worship was so loud that it caused all the other prisoners to hear these crazy nuts, these two Jews that are celebrating the middle of the night and singing praise to their Messiah who they called Jesus. The Lord heard their praise in an earthquake. My brother Don does a message on, the, on what real worship is, and real worship is when the Lord really enters into it and you have earthquakes. And they literally had an earthquake that shook all of their bonds loose. Everybody could walk out. 
And remember, the Apostle Paul gathered all the prisoners, didn't let any of them escape, actually saved the jailer's life physically, because in Roman circles, if you were a jailer and you lost prisoners, you gave your life for that. The Apostle Paul instead gave that man eternal life as he shared with him later that night with his whole family about the story of the gospel. That was the way the church of Philippi was born. Lydia, the seller of purple, at a prayer meeting by the river where the Apostle Paul began his outreach into that city through tremendous suffering in the city. Then uh, a Roman citizen, the Roman jailer, and his whole family came to know Jesus, and the church is born. The Apostle Paul then goes on a third missionary journey. He ends up getting arrested, and a lot of you remember the story from the book of Acts. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, His enemies attack him, and they make a lie about him, saying that he brought Titus, who was a Gentile, into the, the, the temple area where only Jews should go. They falsely arrested him. Paul had never done that. And that introduced a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea. The Apostle Paul won't give bribes and has to go to Rome. And just to fill you in really quickly, as we begin to the book of Philippians, it's one of Paul's last letters, probably written about 62 AD, uh, probably two or three years before um, before he was killed by Nero. And so as you look at this letter, turn to the book of Philippians, you have the opportunity of having an older man that's walked with the Lord over all these years. And I want you to know as we open up this book that the Apostle Paul is in prison. He's lost his freedom. How many of you thank the Lord at Thanksgiving for your freedom? I do. You know, nobody is keeping me enslaved today. No one's keeping me from going anywhere. And yet the Apostle Paul, as we read this book, the Apostle Paul has lost his freedom. In fact, he is chained to a Roman praetorian guard right in the capital of the ancient world, the ancient Roman Empire. Second of all, he's lost his family. We find out in Philippians chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul, because he came to Jesus, lost his family. You see, you can understand that like if you're in an Islamic family these days, and uh, you come to know the Lord Jesus and believe that he is the Messiah. And if you go public with that commitment, a lot of Islamic families throughout the world will cut you off. And they'll, they'll have ceremonies that say you are non-existent. You are no longer a child. It's one of the most horrible things that can ever happen to any of us, to be totally cut off from the blood family that we were born into. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says that when he came to Christ, he lost his physical family. One of the other things that I really, you know, really enjoy and really means a lot to me is my spiritual heritage, being raised as an evangelist son and uh, being raised, like when I went to Dallas Seminary, just about everybody knew who my dad was, and that is a great joy. And all of that spiritual heritage from the way that I was raised is very special to me. The Apostle Paul had that same spiritual heritage. He was born into a Jewish family that taught him Hebrew. He went to study uh, under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, probably when he was about 14 or 15 years of age. And he was rising up. He was a renowned star. It's kind of like if you were in the Southern Baptist Convention that you're, you go to Southwestern Seminary and then you rise up and get the number one churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. That'll give you the feel with what the Apostle Paul, he was on the fast track in Judaism. When he came to know the Lord Jesus, all that ended. He lost all of that in. He lost all of that religious heritage. He lost all of that fast track to leadership in Judaism. 
So if you think about the Apostle Paul, he's lost his family, he's lost his freedom, he's lost his spiritual heritage in a lot of ways that he was raised in. And yet as you read the book of Philippians, and I challenge you to read it if you haven't done so already, a lot of you read it with Life and Focus this week, you've been studying through this book day after day, and one of the things that you notice is that in spite of these terrible circumstances, the Apostle Paul is filled with joy. He's filled with thanksgiving. And what I covet for my own soul and what I covet for your soul is that you would experience a source of thanksgiving, a source of joy that is so powerful that it bubbles up within you even when all the circumstances around you are horrible. How many of you have ever been in a horrible situation? Everything was going wrong. Everything was, was, was bad circumstances. And yet in your heart, you experienced a joy that you couldn't describe. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. It's a very real thing. If you open up the book of Philippians, probably all of there, let's look at the introduction. And remember, in all these books, it'll help you when you study the Apostle Paul. In uh, any of his letters, you have the dear so-and-so from so-and-so introduction. And the Greek and Roman letters put it right at the beginning. So you start out this letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Christ Jesus. So this letter is from Paul, the great apostle. Timothy is his Jewish Gentile associate that came to know the Lord Jesus on his second missionary journey, probably uh, from Derby or Lystra. We know that his mom was Jewish. His daddy was Greek. The apostle Paul says that when Timothy heard the gospel... He responded because his mother and grandmother had trained him in the gospel from the time he was small. The Apostle Paul had Timothy at his side. One of the things that Paul would be incredibly thankful for is that he had these close associates. And I want to challenge every one of you to not be a lone ranger in the faith. One of the things that Philippians teaches us, it's one of the secrets of not running out of thanksgiving, not running out of joy, and to be able to keep having encouragement in your walk with the Lord is you needed Timothy. The Apostle Paul had this young Timothy. And by the way, he is very active in writing several of the Apostle Paul's letters with him. So even the writing of a letter to the Apostle Paul is a team effort. The Holy Spirit's moving through Paul. The Holy Spirit's moving through Timothy. And so we have an opportunity, if, if you don't understand, like, and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is, I want you to know that Paul is the foundation apostle in the first century. Timothy is the associate. So you're reading a letter here from the first century that takes you very back to that generation of believers that saw Jesus raised from the dead, that responded to it, and begin to permeate the Roman Empire. So whether you're a believer or not, you can start out by saying, I've got an opportunity here to read from the most influential first century apostle with one of his sidekicks, and I get a chance to listen to what they experienced. And that's what I would encourage you all to do. Read it personally. Who's the letter to? The apostle Paul wrote the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And we should read that to all those who have been set apart by the power of the Holy Spirit because of their belief in Christ. It takes me all those words to get across to you what saint means. Because almost all of you, when you hear the word saint, you think in terms of Mother Teresa. You think in terms of maybe Billy Graham after he dies and he'll be sainthooded. You think of all those special people. How many of you, 
would think of yourself legitimately being a saint. The way we usually use the English word is we think of those that have reached these great heights in Christendom. That's not the way the Apostle Paul uses the word. To all the saints, he would mean to all those in Philippi that he's written this letter to, that had come to a personal faith in Jesus, have responded to him, the Lord Jesus, have invited him to come and live in their heart, and therefore they've been set apart in a special way for Jesus. The word saint literally means to be set apart. It's like the word holy that you have again and again in Scripture. The moment you received Christ as your Savior, you became a saint. You became set apart for the Lord Jesus. And the book of Philippians says that in a normal Christian life, in a healthy Christian life, you begin by inviting Jesus into your life, and then that continues to transform you and change you until eventually you go home to be with the Lord and you become just like him. So I want you to know that the Apostle Paul, if he was writing this letter to Midlothian and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he is, the Apostle Paul would say to the saints which are in Midlothian and in Waxahachie, part of Midlothian Bible Church, all the places we're from around Ellis County, all right? You would be one of those that he's addressing this letter to. I also want to see something else that's unique about the Corinthian letter. It says, together with the overseers. Some of you might have the word bishop, and there's, again, a strange sleight of hand with words, because when I say the English word bishop, the word bishop means religious professional, right? When I mention the word bishop, what's the picture you have? Long robes, big vestments, spraying incense, right? In fact, Bob and I learned over on the East Coast uh, in Washington at the Evangelical Theological Society that William Tyndale was actually burned at the stake, and because he was a former priest, they killed him before they did it. But he actually got burned at the stake because he refused in his New Testament to translate the Greek word that's used here and in other parts of the New Testament. He refused to translate it into English as bishop. He translated it as overseers, which just meant all of you that have cattle are bishops. You all go out and check on. Kim is a bishop of his cows. It means he's an overseer. Kim, have you checked on your cows this week? Make sure they're healthy. They're all in. They're all fed. Now, in the New Testament, they didn't have as much beef cattle as us Texans do, but they had a ton of sheep. And so the word that was used here, it meant to be an overseer. It meant that you checked on the flock that you were responsible for. It meant that you cared for them when they were sick. It meant that you made sure they were well-fed and well-watered, made sure that they were protected. That was the metaphor, and I want you to know it's the same person that is an elder or a godly father, which is why at Midlothian Bible Church we make such a big deal about this family imagery and the ideas of having fathers, overseers in the family. As we move into... The rest of this year, in our culture and among evangelicals, there's not many daddies. There's not many fathers. There's very few men in our culture that want to oversee anybody. In fact, they're letting the women do it. They let the women oversee their families. They let the women oversee their schools. It's a very powerful force in America. And I want to know something, men. You can gripe, but the reason the women are doing that is because we're gone. 
We're absent, absentee daddies. We do our own thing. We care for our own needs. Because it's hard to really be a daddy, to really bear responsibility. And one of the great needs is that there's a dearth of daddies in the home. There's a dearth of daddies in the local church. And that's something we need to really pray for in Midlothian Bible Church because one of the things that Midlothian Bible Church really needs is some overseers. We need overseers that are younger than Carolyn and myself. You see, Al Bacham and Tommy Hobson and some of those that helped found our church are home with the Lord. And we need some of those that are younger but are not young in the faith to say, I want to be a daddy. I want to be an overseer. And most of you have the idea, well, man, I don't want the hassle. And that shows you we're passive. What are you burning about in your life? What is hassling in your life? What are you investing your life in? The Philippian church, even at this very early period, the Apostle Paul could write to the overseers. There was a group of godly mature men that were responsible for the Philippian church. And the Apostle Paul singles them out because they need to read this letter really carefully so that they can understand the core reality of what the New Testament faith is about and to generate younger children that will be well cared for. I want you to really pray about that. It's something we really need to pray about. The Lord Jesus will raise up overseers in our group, godly daddies that will take responsibility for those children in the body of Christ. Second of all, he talks about to the elders and to the deacons. If you're from a Baptist circle, the word deacon means the person that greets you at the door and gives you a good handshake, and that's a great tradition because that is an act of service. Or if you're from a Baptist circle, it also means that this is the person that with the pastor who was held to be the bishop or the overseer or the elder... Those are the people that sit on the church board and make the decisions for the church. That's the way we think of the word deacon in a lot of our culture today. Originally in the early church, a diakonos was a servant. It was a word that would conjure up, man, I don't want to be a servant. Because that was one of the slaves in the Roman Empire. And the slaves didn't have their freedom. They had to do what their master wanted them to do. And a deacon in the early church was a person that was a, someone that, would, that assumed the role of service. For example, in Acts 6, when the widows weren't being adequately taken care of, there was a group of very godly men that were chosen out by the congregation, and they committed themselves to meeting that need, to serving practically, and organizing the early Jerusalem church to meet those needs. Our church, just like it needs daddies, it needs, like, we use the imagery of a big brother. Big brothers have major responsibility in the body of Christ and in, a, in an individual family, like my own. Jonathan, my oldest son, and Joel had incredible impact in raising Joshua and Janae, my younger kids. And that imagery is used here in the New Testament. And I want to see that the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he can assume, as the Philippian church is growing, that it has a foundation of elders, of overseers, and it has a foundation of servants that are really assuming the role of meeting needs. 
And that's a glorious thing. Your life's never going to find the joy that the Apostle Paul is talking about until you capture this vision that the life of real joy, the life of real thanksgiving, is not concentrating on my own pleasures, but being willing to sacrifice all of them and giving myself to serving Christ. That's all in the introduction. The book is from this great Apostle Paul and his sidekick Timothy, and he's writing to the Philippian believers like you with their overseers and with their servants in the family. The Apostle Paul then goes on in his letter. At the bottom of his letter, he begins with a prayer. So we get a chance to see the Apostle Paul's prayer. And boy, you know, I'm convicted about the incredible burden that the Apostle Paul had in prayer for believers. It's there in verses, uh, verses 9 through 11. And the essence of this prayer that the Apostle Paul prays, look at it in verses 9 through 11. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in sentimentality, in incredible words of romantic love for one another. Anybody have that translation? William Tyndale didn't die for that. Notice he says, this is very interesting. The Apostle Paul unites two concepts in his prayer that are really important. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. Who do you think the love was for that the Apostle Paul wanted it to abound more and more? It was love for Christ. Now, he says that when you really love Christ and it grows, one of the things that will happen is you will grow in your knowledge of Christ and your knowledge and your depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We could just obviously speak the rest of the time on that, but I want you to see this connection. You fall in love with Jesus, and I want to share something with you. Every one of you in this room, when you fall in love with somebody, you want to get to know them better. Janae called me up yesterday. She said, Dad, that time that we went to the Bass Bro Shop up there in Grapevine, was that Harvey, this is months ago, was that Harvey that was there with us? And man, I'm scratching my head. I don't remember who was with us because I've got Alzheimer's disease, you know, and in my late 50s, it starts happening. And she's making me rack my brain. Why was she doing that? Because she wants to know all the little bits of knowledge about the one that she loves. You know, she wants to learn all about his background. He wants to learn all about her background. One of the things that you do when you fall in love, and by the way, girls, a good way to know whether a man really loves you or whether he just wants to use you is that a man that really loves you will want to get to know you. He doesn't just want to kiss you. He doesn't just want to have physical expressions of love with you. He wants to really connect with you, and it will take a lifetime. I'm still learning amazing things about Mary after all these years, things that I never understood before. And that's the joy when you fall in love, you want to keep knowing the person. In fact, Paul says, you husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. Get to know them really well. Try to really figure out what's going on inside them, and that will take you a whole lifetime. You'll never get that done. The same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. Now, here's what happens in your Christian experience. We divide knowledge and love. Like Bob and I were just at a conference with all the teachers in evangelicalism. And one of the things that I noticed, in fact, I conducted an experiment. I think I told you this last week, but it related to this idea of love and knowledge. 
This is the think tank of our entire movement. In fact, when I was laughing, I'm not really laughing. I was praying, Lord, help this plane not to go down. Because the plane they were flying, if this goes down, it's going to devastate Dallas Seminary and Southwestern Seminary. And that's going to be a bad deal for our cause. Because the think tank, all the teachers were on that plane, a whole bunch of them. My brother Don teaches at Southwestern Seminary, and all of his associates were flying that plane with them. Now, as we're there, though, it's all about your head and not so much about love. In fact, sometimes I felt like, have you ever met the person you're taught? You're just telling me these incredibly profound things. One of the leaders told me that he had a concert because he, he realized there needed to be more heart and not just head. And so he brought in an incredible worship leader that's one of the most gifted in Christendom, and a bunch of those teachers left before the concert even really got started. Why? Because it's their head. You see, when you feel it's about your head, it's learning all the details of the Bible. It's learning all the doctrines of the Bible. But when knowledge isn't connected with love, it becomes powerless. It becomes dead. In fact, the younger generation, what postmodernism is about is that knowledge is not divorced from love. Knowledge isn't divorced from relationship. Knowledge always is involved with relationship. And as believers, we've had the ultimate God of the universe, the Lord Jesus, that's come. And I love the Apostle Paul. He says, I want to pray that your love for the Lord Jesus might increase. And that as you fall in love with the Jesus, you'll want to get to know more and more about him. And that's what causes you to grow throughout the course of an entire lifetime. The Apostle Paul, in the next section, he talked about his passion, verses 12 through 30. His passion in this section is the gospel. In fact, as you've been going through our studies in his story, we had the attack against the gospel in Galatians. We had the attack against the unity of the body of Christ in Ephesians. Paul here at the end of his ministry, I almost feel like I'm reading in this little section about Galatians again. The Apostle Paul in this section talks about the fact that he's in prison. And he could be saying, oh, I can't believe I'm in prison. I wanted to go to Spain, and I really wanted to reach more people for Jesus. And now I can't do anything, and I'm going to just sit here and cry and eat some worms. Incredibly, the Apostle Paul didn't do that. The Apostle Paul had the audacity of saying, you're not going to believe this, Philippians. I'm chained to a praetorian guard. There's about 12,000 to 16,000 specially chosen honor guard of the emperor. And because I'm in prison in Rome, I'm imprisoned on guard shifts with repeated praetorian guards. So you're chained to the great Apostle Paul. You got four hours to go. What do you think the Apostle Paul is going to talk to you about? How long do you think it would take him when the, the guard says, well, you know, sir, you know, Paul, Paulus, why are you in Rome? What have you done? I've guarded some really famous brigands, some famous pirates. What kind of a pirate are you? And the Apostle Paul, it says, I was raised as a Jew. I met this incredible Savior on the Damascus Road, and I'm here in jail for one simple reason. It spreads throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The only reason Paul is in jail is because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And that begins to spread like wildfire. Guess what happens? As Paul shares the good news, people in the Praetorian Guard 
are born again, and this is the group that chooses the Caesars because they're the muscle, the military muscle in the city of Rome. And how much of an influence do you think Christianity is going to start to have when you start to have a core among the Praetorian Guard that are following Jesus? And that's why progressively it becomes harder and harder and harder for the emperors to persecute those that believe in Jesus because right within their own households, right within their own military, there's this powerful movement of the Spirit. I love the Apostle Paul. He's passionate. His passion is one thing, the gospel. He says the crazy thing. He says some people are preaching Christ, and they're preaching because they'll know it will encourage me. In other words, because I'm in prison, they'll know that I feel hindered a little bit because I don't have my freedom. And so they're taking advantage of the freedom, and they're telling more and more people about the Lord Jesus. He said there's some other group that are trying to make it harder on me. In other words, they preach Christ because they think if they win more people to Christ, it's going to make my sentence even harder, and there's a greater chance that I'll be executed. And that's what they've been trying to do to me. So Paul has these weird motivations of the way that people are responding to his imprisonment. One, trying to encourage him. One, trying to destroy him. The Apostle Paul says, my only joy is whether it is true motives or false motives. All I care about is that Christ is preached. If you want to have joy that lasts forever, you want to have joy that can handle being in prison or being sick or facing really tough times, when your passion becomes, I just want to have the good news of Jesus be known. And it's not about me. I don't care whether I get to do it. I don't care whether someone else gets to do it. The great insight of the Apostle Paul's life is he's totally out of Paul and into Jesus. And that's the essence of what this incredible passion of the Apostle Paul is. I'm just thankful for one thing Christ has preached. The next section is Paul's plea for believers, chapter 2. And this is an incredible section that starts out with some disunity in the body of Christ. How do you, how do you get things to really hold together in the body of Christ? And for you ladies, this chapter talks about Yodi and Syntyche, and I call them you owe me and soon touchy. You know, they're having trouble. The Apostle Paul is trying to get them to get along, and they're not getting along too well. And the Apostle Paul gives a famous hymn that is one of the most beautiful hymns of the first century. And it talks about Jesus, who was in the form of God, emptied himself and became the form of a servant. So the key in chapter 2 to Paul's plea for unity is that we'll focus not on our own ambitions, but that we'll focus on the humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus. We end with Paul's prophet, and chapter 3 is a chapter that I've gone back to again and again in my life. I started out telling you about how Paul had lost his family. Paul had lost his spiritual heritage in a lot of ways. He was an outcast. He lost his freedom. And he begins Philippians 3 by sharing, I want to give you the guts of my life. And he says, I counted my birth. I counted all that education I had. I counted the fact that I was moving up in Judaism. He says, I counted all that as cow manure. That's what he uses, manure. Just that's a tough way to talk. But one thing, and here's the key of the book. Look at Philippians chapter 3, which is the heartbeat of the book. Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider lost for the sake of the Messiah. Remember when you read Christ, it's the Messiah. What is more, I consider everything, everything in my life as compared 
to the surpassing greatness of being intimate, of knowing. Remember the love, knowledge, connection of knowing the Messiah, the Savior, my Lord, the Yahweh, the word that was used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So my divine Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything, and I consider them all cow dung, the NIV chickened out. The word there for rubbish is manure. I count them all manure for one thing that I may gain Christ. As we have come out of Thanksgiving, we think about your own life. I want you to ask yourself this question. If you have blank, you have everything. From the young and old, think about your life. If I have question mark, I have everything. What do you fill the blank in? As you go out and we get back into school and back in our job and everything, everybody that you meet fills in that blank with something. If I have, you know, as your pastor teacher, I've shared with you, you know, as I go through the progression of my life, when I was in high school, one of the ways I went into that, if I have the position of first-string quarterback in the football team, I have everything. And some of you are at that stage. Then I moved into college and found out that the girls didn't care whether you're playing football and I was having a headache, hardly could make it to the weekend. No parties. I just went to sleep. My head hurt so badly. And I also realized that the intellectuals were more respected. So I said, if I can have straight A's in chemistry then I have everything. And I've shared with you how no one cares less anymore now. Even when I talk about you, most of you go, oh, goodness, he's living in the old days again. I don't need to hear about that. You see how quickly what you thought was so important. Nobody's ever asked me what I made in organic chemistry. No one's ever asked me what I graduated from at Houghton College. Never. In fact, even the people that hired me have barely looked at that. In academics, it just goes just like that. And then you move into your career. If only I can have, and you fill in the blank, success of my career. How do you fill in the blank? And I want to challenge you. We're going to have communion together. You know what communion is about? Communion is about the joy of knowing that Jesus is inside of you. It's the joy of saying with Paul, like he says, for me to live is, how did Paul answer that? For me to live is, everybody tell me, And therefore, to die is gain. Chapter 3 is coming back to that pulse beat. It's coming back to that same pulse beat. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.